good. I mean, it's always, you know, it's always so fun, but also so exhausting, yeah. you know? So, I, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to get a real proper uh, cappuccino and, um, uh, the lines were too long. So I, I just have sh- shitty coffee. And, and so I would like to be, have a better coffee. I'd, yeah. I'd be holding up better if I had a better coffee. So your bit, your goal for New York Comic Con is to find a better coffee. Yes. I think that's always my goal. I would say that was a reasonable goal, and it would be a reasonable goal in most cases, but here it absolutely is not. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's inachievable. Yeah. You know? So how many of these things do you end up doing a year? I mean, you're kind of on a bit of a book tour since, what, April? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm always doing um, lots of things, you know, and it's not just comic book festivals. Like, I do book festivals a lot, too, because I write novels as well. So um, I I feel like I'm always traveling. Yeah. Like, um, I... Maybe I don't know ten. That's 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 almost as many months as there are in the year. Yeah, I feel like I do something pretty much an event like every month. Yeah, I don't know that it's it's not necessarily like, and then I fly across the globe. But I mean, I just came here from Thought Bubble in Leeds. Uh, next week I'm here now. Next week I go to Vancouver. <laughs> are, are you are you yeah, fully here, here now? now? Okay. Next week I go to the Vancouver Book Festival. Yeah. Then in November I go to the Miami Book Festival. So, I mean, that's, feels like a lot, that's four in two months. Yeah. It's one thing when you, when you sort of, you know, take, take a step back and look at the number. I've been doing a lot of traveling myself lately. Uh, you know, when you look at the sheer numbers of places that you need to be, but I think the more kind of existential burden that you have is when you realize that it just doesn't stop. Never stops. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, I always try to like, you know, rather than fly back to LA and then fly here from London. I was like, okay, I'll stay for a few yeah. days in London and do touristy things, which is great because nice. usually when I go to a city, I can't, I mean, I don't see anything. Yeah. I'm just at the convention center, you know, so, so, um, so that's nice to pat, to get to pad a day or two around, uh, an event. I, I just, yeah, I, I travel a lot for work and I, I just start doing that for my insanity, the realization that like, I thought, I thought it was a better idea to just get home as quickly as possible, but it feels terrible to be in a what you know is a really awesome place yeah. and just sort of like in your silo. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I always try to like yeah. hit a museum or go to the theater, or, like you know, just do something, you know. So, do you do you enjoy the travel and the appearances? I do mostly. Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say that I do because it's so great when you're um, when you when you meet like okay, for example, yesterday these two 15 year olds yeah. came up to me and to take a picture with me at the Comicsology booth, and um, and they were in cosplay, and I have a new book called Don't Cosplay with My Heart that's out on Scholastic, uh-huh. which is in the book fairs, yeah. and they had bought the book at their book fair. I hadn't even seen it yet, and like they came and they were just like, we love this book so much. And you had not seen a physical copy of the book that you made. No, I had not seen yeah. it, and these two girls came up. And they were in cosplay yeah. at a comic book convention, and it's a YA novel about teenagers going to comic book conventions and cosplaying. Yeah. So it was like so, so things like that. Yeah. It's just amazing because you're you're meeting the exact people that you're writing for, you know, and um, and that's uh, that's really great. And it's also very moving to see how, you know, a lot of people are very very touched by Shade, the Changing Girl, and um, or Soupy Leaves Home, and. And they come up and they they say why it meant something to them. And and as a creator, like you're just in your house by yourself, yeah, typing, feeling in your pajamas like a troll. And um, so it's nice to sort of be like, okay, I you know this was, I did I did something that was 
of value to someone, you, you know, besides myself, you know. And it's validation because you yourself are not a 15-year-old girl, and yeah. I assume that you don't do a ton of cosplay. Not, no, not any. I mean, I did when I first started going yeah. to comic book conventions back in the 80s. I, I, yeah. I cosplayed as, a, my favorite was Jessica Six from Logan's Run. Uh-huh. Uh, but, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's just more like when you're making art, sometimes you despair and you don't know. You don't know why you're bothering or yeah. why if anyone will care. Yeah. And so it's really nice to sort of directly see how moved somebody is because it gives you that little sort of uh, wind to, to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, especially, I'm sorry to say, these days, it's very hard to create art when the world is sort of feeling like it's really having a, a, a pang of despair. No, and, you're <laughs> certainly welcome to say that. You're not able to channel some of that horribleness into your work? I do, absolutely. But then I also think, Is like... Is work progressively more dystopian <laughs> over the past six months or so? Actually, I think I want to make it try to be more hopeful. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. envision a more hopeful situation. <laughs> but I think it's just more like, I, I get so tired from all the relentless sliding that's happening, yeah. you know, right now. And, um, and so I just sort of think, like, who cares about aliens when there's real problems making up stories or writing fiction you just sort of feel like what what am i doing yeah. like you know this is not a value in the world but then you remember oh yeah no art saves yeah. like art is the thing that gives voice to the horrors or to the confusion or you know to all of that and so it is important and i'm sure every artist who has ever lived through times that are very fraught would feel the same way yeah. and be like, oh, what am I doing? But also like, oh, no, this is what's going to get us through. So, yeah. I mean, all, all, obviously all of this sort of really great, like, science fiction and fantasy, I mean, it's all allegory, right? These are all... Absolutely. These, these are certainly things that you can tap into in your work. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because it's like for Shade the Changing Girl, Shade's superpower is madness, you know? And, and you know, you can't, you know, when you're dealing with a superpower like madness and everything is going mad around her... Yeah. And you're living in a mad time. It's pretty yeah. compelling, you know. It's it's almost soothing to go into the madness and be like, "All right, well, yeah. yes, this is crazy." Controlled you know? madness is yeah. madness a, a useful superpower in a mad world? Uh, you know, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's because it's like fighting fire with fire. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of like what this is. So I, I don't even know if I'm like set the, if I set the scene yet, but we're here at New York Comic Con, and it's like, hey, let's get out of the madness of the world. And go into the craziest place possible. Yeah. And, and it is an escape for people. Yeah. And it does feel very hopeful because people, I mean, I love being nerdy and yeah. I love nerds so much. Yeah. And um, just you, like, the greatest thing about nerds and being a nerd is that everybody's passionate. Yeah. You know, they're super passionate. And so I, that's just incredible to see. And that makes it feel really hopeful. And then you see all these little kids who are super passionate as well, you know. And, yeah, and then, like you said, like, science fiction, fantasy they're allegories. They're um, they're you know confronting big questions that maybe are too scary to talk about, sort of in contemporary terms. And people are thinking about those yeah. things and talking about those things. And as long as people are still talking, which they do here, you know, um, I think there's oh that makes me hopeful. You were doing these things as as a fan in the eighties. Yeah, I used to go to creation conventions here in New York City. That must have been a very different experience than it is today. It was, yeah, it was very different. I mean, especially being like an eleven-year-old girl. Yeah. Um, which was when I went to my first uh, convention. Um, there weren't very many, <laughs> you know, young girls yeah. like that were going to comic book conventions. Um, 
But I went with my friend Nicole Branch. We would go, and a big memory for me was I got to meet um, Chris Claremont and um, I think John Byrne. Yeah, like, and, um, sounds about right. One of them drew me a, a sketch, you yeah. know, and um, and I, at the time I was like, I think maybe when I was like 13, I had like a shag, so I kind of looked like Kitty Pride, and they kept calling me Kitty, and you know, and it was just really cool. I just felt like I like I felt like. I was very welcomed into the world, you know, and it wasn't weird. It was like, you know, it was totally just like I was a fan and they drew me a picture and signed my comic book. And, um, you know, I was like a big Star Wars, like more movies nerd at the yeah. time, but definitely had a younger brother who was reading a lot. Um, he was, you know, so he I just used to read from his pull box and stuff. So, yeah. It's and, funny. It usually works the other way around. Like, you usually have the older sibling who sort of gets you into stuff, but you were kind of like on the sly. Well, it wasn't really on the sly. I mean, I started, I came into comics because I was obsessed with Adam West's Batman. Yep. And uh, my parents saw that. And so they bought me an omnibus of Batman and Superman comics from the 40s and 50s when I was like four or five years old. So you never had any pushback about being into comics from your parents? Never. Yeah. No. That's I nice. mean, they like gave me those yeah. and then. My parents are French Canadian, okay. so they love Bon Destiné. So yeah, yeah. they were like, "Here's Tintin, yeah, here's yeah. Asterix, here's yeah, yeah. the Smurfs, here's <laughs> Lucky Luke." Like you know, so it was a constant, steady diet of comics when I was growing up. So it wasn't weird. It was more like I didn't want to like try to figure out having a pull list, but my brother did. So I was like, "I'll just read what he's reading." That does kind of give you a leg up if they're French Canadian, or especially if they're actually European, and that, that any sort of stigma about comics as long if, if it ever existed yeah. it's long gone yeah i was lucky in that you know i think at one point my my mother realized as long as he's reading something it's probably a net positive yeah. at the end of the day we were working with scholastic i just came from the first second booth was interviewing somebody over there and that stigma seems to i don't know if it's gone away completely but it, it's complete it's changed a lot yeah. in the past five to ten years yeah you know you go to these library shows and i assume you appear at either elementary schools or middle schools yep. and there's and the stigma just doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's really changed. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember that I had a book called The Plain Janes yeah, with yeah, the yeah, DC Comics, and um, the which I just got the rights back. Oh, and yeah, Jim and I are Jim Rugg and I are uh, we're re-releasing it in, that, um, in 2019 on Little Brown, and we're doing a third book, and it's going to be released as a 10th anniversary, like you know, omnibus. But anyway, uh, I digress. That at the time that line was not really successful because there wasn't sort of an infrastructure. Schools didn't know. That wasn't really that long ago, no, was it? No, it was what? 11 years. 11 years, yeah. Um, but bookstores wouldn't put it in the wow. young people's section, you know, so it was just mixed in with all the other. The yeah. Librarians weren't really, not all librarians knew how to curate graphic novel lists. It just wasn't the right time. So, you know, that it sort of failed. Um, but then I think that, you know, I like to say to Jim, it's like we put on our bonnets and we got in our wagon, and we tried to settle the West, and we died. Yeah, you, you ended up eating a little bit yeah. of Jim's arm, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Perhaps, or, you know, I got ty typhoid or something. But, the um, oxen drowned. Yeah, but, but the West was one, and, and I think that that's really exciting. I remember seeing Gene Yang, who um, did American Born Chinese yeah, and Boxers and Saints, and he was uh, talking about, about how, uh, this was like 10 years ago, or whatever, eight years ago, about how we need, in this society now, we need two kinds of literacy. We need, uh, you know, literacy of words, but also visual literacy because we have so many, you look at your apps, you look yeah. at, you know, everything is visual. And so I think maybe that's one of the reasons why comics um, have become more widely accepted as not being sort of not important or not of value in like yeah. your your fluency because um, because I think people are beginning to see that, 
you know, it's part of your visual fluency, you know, that it's helpful for. I mean, it also took, you know, a book like Jean's book or, you know, Raina. obviously Raina's. Yeah. But it took books that were kind of legitimized by, you know, winning these awards in the same way that Mouse had to win the Pulitzer to yeah. really sort of start that revolution as well. Yeah. I mean, and I think I think the thing is, is that, um, you know, I think I think uh, middle grade comics is very robust and healthy right now. I'd love to see young adult comics mm. Get that sort of same sort of thing. I feel Just right for now. For somebody who's yeah. kind of a, an outsider of that world specifically, what's the delineation between oh, the two? So I would say middle grade. Uh, middle grade is sort of um, eight to twelve okay. age range, and young adult is twelve and up. Okay. I think one of the problems, and I say problems with air quotes around it, um, is that the thing about a lot of comics. I don't even know how to say it. It um, they're all ages, but they're not yeah. all ages in the sense that they're that means that they're for children. Yeah, they're all ages, as in just like um, um, you know, Hergé uh, used to say, like it's uh, ages seven to seventy-seven. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Like it's like um, so I think that's one of the sort of not dilemmas, but yeah. um, tricky things is that it's like you know, like like a book like American Born Chinese. Sure, that's for young adults, or you know you know, young people, but it's not just for young people. It's for everybody. And that's true for a lot of comics. You know, um, we talk about this a lot with shade, the changing girl, you know, it's on the young animal imprint, which is a a mature imprint, but mature just means mature, sophisticated concepts. It doesn't mean necessarily only for adults. So I think that that's like where there's sort of this, like sort of, um, you know, the, the categorizing, which is not up to the artists. It's, yeah. that's just marketing, you know, marketing stuff. So when I say young adult, I feel like, I feel like Scholastic and First Second have, um, have really, and a lot of places have like really done a lot for like sort of comics that are geared towards sort of 12 and under, um, you know, but, but that are for everybody, you know, still, but that they're still like, um, when you get into the sort of before adults, like the 12 and up, um, that there's still it just automatically just, yeah, like it just, sort of falls off a cliff yeah. and goes into that yeah and and I don't think that's a bad thing because I mean there are comics that yeah. teenagers can read everywhere and also like I said most comics are for all ages like for example Soupy Leaves Home which is like my dark horse book it's about hobos yeah it's about a girl who rides Everybody the rails as hobos. a hobo yeah and it's like sure you know I would say that it's for ten and up you know that would sort of maybe eight and up you know. Um, if they're a sophisticated eight-year-old, you know, because it's got a little bit of violence in it. But there's no reason why a 35-year-old couldn't yeah. read it. You know, it's a book is a book is a book is a book. But this is a problem that I think happens with children's literature when you start categorizing, like, what is, you know... The issue is the way it's being categorized, or the issue is that there aren't books that are both targeted toward that demographic and specifically deal with issues that kids of that age are going through. Oh, God, now I feel like I've, like... I've like made a statement and I'm like, I'm like, oh, and I'm like, I'm not even, I don't even want to die on this cliff. One of the issues with all ages, as good as it is, is that it's also important to have books that deal with specific things that kids are going through that they yes, can relate to absolutely. directly. Well, I, I think maybe what I'll talk about is like, um, how, so before there were these, all these marketing categories, right? Yep. Um, there used to be juvenile literature. And what happened was that in the past, before there was a young adult section, a young adult marketing category, Kids would go from juvenile literature, they would go from those books that were for children, and then they usually went to genre, because there was no book in between juvenile literature and adult Mm -hmm. literary fiction. There was like no, you know, like you... You go straight to Dostoevsky. Yeah, exactly. So so kids 
usually would go to science fiction, mystery, yeah. romance, westerns, fantasy. You know, that's why so many, like for me, there was no young adult section when I was growing up. There was Forever by Judy Bloom, and pretty much that was it, you know? It was an older book by an author that skews younger. Exactly. And so, you know, and so there really weren't books for teenagers at that time. I mean, there were a few, you know, but there weren't very many. Not yeah. like there, not like there is now. So, a lot of the books that teenagers would go to would be like Dune or Lord of the Rings or you know the like um, Agatha Christie. Um, and uh, but then it, you know in the nineties, two thousands, they started to make this marketing category for young adults yeah. specifically. And so then now you have this like big golden age of young adult literature. So I'm saying that there's been a golden age for middle grade, you know, the category of middle grade graphic novels. And I think we've got a real wide range of stories, real diverse kinds of stories being told in, in that. But that hasn't quite happened yet for young adult. There are a few, but not like as many as middle grade. So I'm saying I just would yeah. love to see young adult comics. Almost like transitional yeah. comics. Yeah. That everybody could read. Yeah, but I've noticed this. Does that um, make sense at all? It does. Okay. It does. And it, so all of a sudden, I'm like, oh no, I haven't had my right coffee. And what am I talking about? I'm drinking the crappy coffee, so this is <laughs> this is not coming out right. You know, usually when I talk to people in YA, it's usually cartoonists, but they'll often write something, and it will get categorized in a place that they didn't anticipate. Right. And I don't know if that's marketing. I don't know, you know, if marketing is really in tune to what those kids needs or, or want, but it is interesting to sit down, work on something, assume that it's for adults and then it gets this sort of YA label. Yeah. I mean, and I've never had that happen to me because I always wanted to write young yeah. adult. So that was never like, I was never like, what? Yeah. Um, I think it's more that I get annoyed that people say, Oh, but I'm not a teenager. And I'm like, really? You don't like hobos? You really, you can't yeah. spend like one yeah. bathtub read, like reading about yeah. an amazing hobo adventure, yeah. you know, like, like that's what the problem buy is. buy it because it's labeled because in it's a labeled, certain way. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what the problem yeah. is, you know, and I think that I don't know, you know, I, I don't know people that you're talking about, but I, I think sometimes what I've seen is that people who are like, oh, I didn't realize it was YA. Some of them are like, oh, that's fine. That's yeah. cool. And then some of them are like, but I'm a serious yeah. person because I mean, I still get asked by well-intentioned people you know, um, when are you going to write a real book? I'm like, I have 21 real books out. I guess the question is is um, <laughs> more of kind of how, whether putting that, that label is always necessarily a useful thing. Like you said, you know, these, these books existed in the world before. I think it's useful in the sense that there are a lot of books. So many books. There are so many books. It's true. And I think it's really helpful for people to be able to find them. Yeah. And so I think that's just one easy way of finding them. I mean, look. I think there's a statistic out there that says 60% or 65% of the people who read young adult fiction are women over 35. So, like, what does that category really mean, yeah. you know? Um, it's just, I think it's just like, it's just sort of like, you know, sort of, you're, you're zeroing in on a, on a literary flavor that you want, right? I mean, there's a lot of great literature in young adult yeah. literature, a lot of great, you know, literature in, in comic books, you know, and so it just is sort of helpful to kind of, you know, I think that's why, you know, the, like the difference between the floppies and like the, um, you know, a graphic novel, yeah. you know, like a lot of people who like, they're like, oh, I would never read a floppy, but they'll read the graphic novel yeah. of Shade, but they won't literature. pick up the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They won't, they'll pick it up when it's a book, but they won't pick it up when it's floppies, you know, and so I think it's just, um, 
I think it's just a ma- and I think that's why the book market for you know trade collections and for graphic novels is doing well is because people think of that as yeah. sort of more elevated. Not everybody, but you know some some people who you know, and I, I think it's fine as long as people are finding. I mean, I think the saddest thing is when people don't find the stories that they would really love because they're like, that's not for me. And, you know, that's, there's nothing we can do about that. That's, you know, it's, so I think any way that you can sort of cross, I, I feel like marketing is such a weird thing because it's like as a creator, you don't have any control over it. Yeah. You know, so I, you can't write to it. You can't, I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write a YA novel or I'm going to write a kid's comic or a young person's comic. I don't. I just write a story. But is it useful for you to know who you're writing for? Do you think about these 15-year-old cosplay girls when you sit down and write a book about well, cosplay? When I, when I sat down to write that book, Don't Cosplay With My Heart, yeah. I mean, I knew specifically that it was going to be about teenagers at a yeah. comic book convention. You know, it's a romance, you know, YA romance. Um you know, so yeah, for sure. For that one, I definitely did think about that audience. And I talk a lot about sort of, you know, geek girls and uh, a lot of the problems that, um, that we've encountered with, you know, um, men asking yeah. us to explain ourselves or to uh, prove that we're really geeks or whatever. And, um, and I think that's important and valuable for young girls to, to, you know, know that they're not alone, like that cosplay is not consent, like all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, so I absolutely was thinking about them in that sense. But when I was writing Soupy Leaves Home, you know, which even though it had a young protagonist, I didn't think of it. I mean, it also has an, uh, you know, like a 70 year old man that's one of the protagon- main protagonists in that story as well, even though it's, it's from Soupy's point of view. Um, I really feel like it's a, a, a it's, it's a, a buddy film, yeah. you know, buddy movie, yeah. uh, comic. So I, I, you know, I just assumed that that was, just a book, but I'm delighted that it's appropriate for 10 and up because I think that kids love hobos, you know? So the thing that I did with that was to make sure that there's like a a chart of hobo signs in the back because adults might find that cool, but I know kids would totally find that cool, you know? It sounds like you had to do a lot of homework for that. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I did a lot of research. When you so say the signs, research. you mean like written inside the uh, train car? That, yeah, or yeah. like on fences, yeah. they would leave um, they would leave signs saying like "You can camp here," yeah. or "Kindly woman," or you know, "Man with gun," or you know, go, "Get out," <laughs> or you know, "This is a good road to travel," or you know, all these um, separate signs that were sort of a secret code to let the hobo that was coming up behind yeah. you know what was what. And I mean, the hobos were fascinating. I mean, they had like a, an ethic code that they that they tried to follow. They had a hobo court, and they would try, you know, their their own. They had their own sense of justice, and you know, they they were not homeless people. They were transient workers, and um, yeah, dust bowl and yeah, layer, yeah. And uh, you know, the kids uh, that uh, left home, often not soupy in my book, but um, many of the kids who left home at that time, it was because the Great Depression was happening. They were the oldest child. They didn't want to burden their parents, and so they would leave home, hop the rails and pick fruit or, you know, do, you know, tiny jobs moving across America. And it was, it's really fascinating. Did that come out of that research? Did you find just a topic you were fascinated with and then end up writing a book about it? No, I, somebody wrote on Facebook, what would your hobo name be? Okay. It came out of a meme. (laughs) It wasn't even like, yeah, it was just like somebody asked a question and, uh, and I was like, oh, my name would be Soupy. Didn't even have to think about it? No. And then and then I started thinking about Soupy. And yeah. at the time, I was going through a really tough time. Like, I something traumatic had happened, and I, I was in a very dark place. I couldn't figure out a sort of way out. Hmm. And I started, after I wrote, my name would be Soupy, 
I started thinking about hobos and I started thinking about like, you know, leaving, just leaving. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to leave my life, yeah. but I couldn't figure out, I couldn't, and I couldn't um, figure out how really to move forward. There's something romantic about what it yeah. probably was a terrible life. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and so, uh, but I do think that there was some grace in that hard life of hobos. Yep. I couldn't leave my circumstances and I couldn't really handle what was going on in my life at the time, but I could write about this girl named Soupy who, who sort of goes on the road and figures out her shit, you know? And so I feel like that book really helped and healed me. So it really came out of like dark time, weird somebody Facebook thing, and me just being like grasping onto it as like a thread towards some kind of light when I couldn't see any way to move forward, you know? So it was... It's a really important book to me personally. Is that sort of a common thread with your books or, or do you often use them to kind of escape or at least put your mind, get your mind away from things that are happening in your real life? I mean, during that time, it was a really bad time. I did write three books that I directly would say have to do with me trying to sort of figure out yeah. that. And that's in, in that you were working through it through in the it. book? Yeah. Really? Through, yeah. So that's uh, First Day on Earth, which is on Scholastic. Year of the Beasts, which uh, is a hybrid novel. It's alternating chapters of prose and graphic novel. And it's illustrated by Nate Powell, who oh, did yeah, the March course. trilogy. Yeah. And it's you can read just the prose and you get one story or just the comics and you get one story. But if you read it together, you get the whole story. And Soupy Leaves Home. Those three books I wrote at that time. Because like Soupy... I came up with that idea like nine years ago and it just came out this, you know, so sometimes books just, yeah. it's a labor of love. It takes a long time. But I mean, I wouldn't say that that's sort of always the case, but I, I don't think that you can be an artist and not channel. You, yeah. You have to pull from what's yeah. going on. Just like with Shade the Changing Girl, you know, um, Marley and I have definitely made comments on what's going on in society today in the book because it's dealing with madness, you know, um, uh, Shade, uh, it possesses the body of this 16-year-old bully. And um, if you haven't read it yet and you want to, just this is a spoiler, but um, she's sort of, it, it's implied that she's pregnant with something. And then she she meets this old TV character that, uh, not character, but um, actress who played this character that she was obsessed with, this character, Honey. Shade is like, how do I get rid of it? And Honey's like, oh, you think you have control over your body? Like, no. Other people think they have control over your body. I mean, and that's directly. Yeah. <laughs> directly there's a lot, what's of, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, exactly. And, and she's like, what? I'm an alien. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, and then that's just like two panels in like a 12-issue comic yeah. book. But it's like you can't be in this world right now and not like things come in. So so I would say it's either the personal or the sort of political that kind of steep their their way through because you're creating art in this time at this particular moment with who you are, right? I always like to think of every book that I do or every piece of work that I do as a document of where I was at that moment. I would never write Soupy Leaves Home now the way that I did then. I would write it differently, you know. Um so, you know, and that's fine, you know. Like that's why you keep writing new books. But it is interesting the way in which you work through these things, that you're dealing with things in your life as an adult person. Yeah. And somehow through the alchemy of writing a book, it is best targeted towards a younger audience. 
You know, I think the thing is, is that everybody has been a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, most yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> like, some people are about to get there, you know? Yeah. So I think everybody can relate to that feeling. And I, I think that um, writing about young protagonists, it's a really interesting time because they're characters who are feeling everything for the first time. The first kiss, first love, first betrayal, first rage, first everything. So it's just so, a raw, it's, it's a, a raw nerve. Yeah, yeah, it's a raw nerve. And that, as a, as a, as a creator, it's just a infinitely m- more interesting time to write about. At the same time, everybody, you know that everybody has gone through it, so they can relate in some way. And at the same time, I don't think that those feelings from teenagerdom ever change. Like, I feel like now, even as a lady of a certain age, I like, you know, still I'm dealing with cliques and cool kids and, you know, like yeah. nerds and not nerds. And yeah. like, I mean, it's like the same bullshit, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that it's, you don't really have to look too far. It's not like, wow, that's a very foreign land. I think the foreign land is more like there's more technology to monitor children now than there was when I was growing up. I was a latchkey kid. You know, my parents would just send me away on my bicycle to forests where there were rusty nails. And, you know, I would just be gone for hours. Nobody knew where I was. Nobody knew how to, like, get in touch with me. That's very different than now, you know, because kids are not, they don't have that kind of freedom. But I think that's why you see a lot of dystopian things. I would say that, like, I think kids love dystopia because it's like they're so, they're like on lockdown all the time, you know? When did you start writing? I mean, I was always writing, but um, my first novel, I sold my first novel in 2003, came out in 2005. It was called Boyproof. But you were doing short stories and everything? And I was doing, I was writing. I wrote three novels before I sold my, really? yeah, the fourth one. And, and then... You, and, you, and you kept at it after... Oh, yeah. Yeah? I just, I always just sort of felt like you just keep doing it. Yeah. Every, like, I feel like as an artist, I don't know, someone told me early on that the life of, his, of an artist is um, everybody saying no to you all the time. And... And so you just have to say yes to yourself. So I just, just kept going. But before that, I was, um, I was doing music. So I was in a, I was in an indie rock band in the nineties. So I did that. And then when I quit that career, I started, I was like, I'm going to be a novelist now. If creating artists, people saying no to you all the time, what, what was sort of the nail in the coffin for being a professional musician? Um, well, I could always make a comeback like Cher. So, you know, I'm just saying. Famous indie rock musician Cher. (laughs) Yeah. You never know. For me, it was when um, MP3s and yeah. all the lab- all my friends, they were on major labels. And like in the late 90s, all the labels kind of kicked everybody off their yeah. rosters. And uh, I wasn't on a major label. I was on an indie label, Cargo Records. Okay. And uh, yeah. anyway, a bunch of different little tiny yeah. indie labels. And they all went bankrupt. And yeah. so then I was like, okay, I'm done. So you're like publishing is a lucrative yeah. place to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, but I still do keep my hand in music. I, yeah. I just wrote... Um, a libretto for my second opera that's debuting next uh, May in Montreal. Uh, it's a hockey noir opera, so if you're a hockey noir... Tapping into yeah. the uh, French-Canadian yeah. parents. It sounds like you don't have trouble coming up with the ideas. I get a lot of ideas. Yeah. It's true. You're doing, again, 10 of these a year. You're working on your opera. How do you possibly carve out the time to actually do your job? Not that it's not yeah. all your job, but how do you carve out the time to actually Cut sit down to and, me, and like write? weeping and rocking back yeah. and forth. As a, I mean, a you just make time. I mean, I'm friends. With, I'm friends with Corey Doctorow, and yeah, he yeah. travels a lot too. Yeah. And I'm just always impressed with him because yeah. he he just like writes like 300 words a day. He just chips at it, chips at it, and I think that's and what you do. And yeah, and he does everything. And, and yeah. it's like I'm going home from here. And then I have a week until Vancouver Book Festival. And I know that that, that whole week, I will just be working on one project. 
like I will knock something out of the yeah. way. And I won't leave my house. I won't probably see people. I'll, I just sort of make it happen, you know? Um, and also it's like everything is in a different state. So something might be, uh, I might be revising one thing and starting something else from scratch, but those are two different parts of your brain that you're using. I get the discipline. I understand that. Like I... I'm good at setting aside time and, and working, but I don't understand how you had this book come out, you know, that you started nine years ago. How can you compartmentalize like that? How can you work on so many different projects in so many different states? I just love projects. Yeah. I just love stories. I have some stories in me that I've been wanting to write since I was 20. I'm going to get to them at some yeah. point, but they're just not ready yet. So I think it's just like when the story becomes ready. What does that mean when you know that a story is, is mature enough to actually sit down and work on? I've described it before as it's kind of like when Athena bursts out of Zeus's yeah. head fully formed, where I in a flash sort of see the beginning and the ending completely and uh, I kind of get a feeling. Yeah. And then usually when I'm writing a novel mostly, I write the last line of the book, like the last paragraph first, and that's sort of my north star to guide me when i do that that's when i know i'm really going to do it i get a lot of ideas and i'm never going to do those ideas so you have these sort of abstract germs of ideas but once the parameters are set that's yeah. when it's time to do yeah. it was that something that you came to organically that does sounds a little bit i don't want to like diminish it but it, it so almost sounds like a writing workshop exercise oh yeah Write no. the first line and write the last line. I've uh, never taken. Yeah. I've never. I didn't get an MFA. Didn't go to school for writing. Yeah. So uh, I have no idea if that's what they do. I think it must be organic. It's just sort of like what I kind of came to. Yeah. I think what happened was that I realized that I get a lot of idea. I got a lot of ideas. You know, I think a lot of writers or pre-published writers or people who want to be writers, they start but they can't finish. And so I was like, how about I just finish and then I can just write <laughs> to get there. Yeah. And then the other thing that I do is um, I write the parts that I like, um, and then I put placeholders. So I'll just be like, some fantastic thing will happen here, or like battle, or like whatever. You eat your dessert first, and then yeah, you go back and... because I think the worst thing in the world is the blank page. I yeah. hate it. I love revising. So if I write a bunch of words, and they're all wrong, but I have like little like placeholders, and yeah. it's not an outline, it's like little placeholders... Then I have a scaffolding or a skeleton. I yeah. call it my skinny skeleton. Then I can go back and revise that. I'd be like, oh, that's wrong. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll write this paragraph now. Oh, it's kind of trick. It's always about tricking myself into writing. As somebody who, in my t early teen years, read a lot of Kerouac, for example, yeah. I think writing like that might have ultimately done a disservice for a lot of people who want to be writers because, or sort of any other example that you can point to of somebody tapping into the muse or something. Yeah. When the best writing comes when it's like completely organic and you inhabit it and it flows through you. When you don't get there, you feel like a failure. Yeah. And so much of writing and so much of any work, writing and recording music is the same way. So much of it is sort of methodical. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, are we doing ourselves a disservice when we completely romanticize the act of creating? Yeah, it's not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of torture. And I don't say that lightly or like it to even to be romantic in that way. You know, it's just it's really hard because especially if you want to try to do good work, and you want to put yourself on the page. And I never feel like, I always feel like, oh, next time I'll get there. Next time yeah. I'll get there. Next, You know, I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to evolve. Like, like when I say I would never write Soupy the way that I wrote it ten year, nine years ago now, it's because I'm a different person yeah. now, you know? I'm but in a different place. You don't feel place. like those are less than. No, and I don't think they're less than at all. That's why I say I think of them as a document of where I was. And I think the only, the, the, the trick about being an art, artist of any kind is that, 
you can't get better unless you do stuff and you can only you have to do stuff and you have to let it go at some yeah. point because it's never going to be perfect. You yeah. just have to keep doing more projects. That's why I like projects, you know, because I just want to I just want to tell stories and grow and do new things and mash up things and like I'm I feel like I'm just getting started, you know. It's such a hard thing to pinpoint, especially when it is it's painful birthing something. It's painful going through the process of revising and editing it. These shows can be fun, but they can also be a grind. Can you pinpoint the part that you enjoy, the part that like really gives you like, real pure pleasure in the process of writing and creating? Sometimes I'll write something and then I'll weep while I'm writing it. And it's like I'm getting, I'm, I might even cry now, like as close as possible to being human, if that makes any yeah. sense. And, um, and it's just a, it's a flash. It's one yeah. sentence, one word. And I just think, oh, it's like this amazing thing. Somebody once said to me, and I say it to any kid who asks me, like, how do I know if I'm an artist? I say, try quitting. You know, I, I can't quit. Yeah. You know, I want to quit every day because it's so hard yeah. and it's so heartbreaking. And then you put out your thing and it doesn't get marketed properly or like nobody knows it's there or that people hate it or, or you write three you novels know. that never come out. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's this very, very difficult, difficult thing. I think it's like a calling. You get called yeah. to be an artist. So I can't really explain except that there's something divine about it. And I love stories and I just but, want to be in them. But it is still enjoyable. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> there you go, that was Cecil Castellucci recorded that a few months ago at New York Comic Con. Thanks to Dark Horse for setting aside part of their booth for that conversation, so we had a relatively quiet place to speak. Thanks to Heidi McDonald, our mutual friend, for suggesting Cecil for the show. And of course, thanks to Cecil for doing it and for just being a pure beam of energy and goodness in the world that was a very enjoyable conversation all of the insight that we we're able to get into a process and how she's just able to do what seems just like an incredible amount of work at all times you can check that work out over at misscecil.com you can follow her on twitter that's at misscecil so thanks again to her thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program another uh, year in the books and i'm looking at my tumblr account and realizing that we are uh, about four months away from the fifth anniversary of the show which is uh, kind of exciting but mostly uh, terrifying that we've been doing this for so long I'm, I'm i i did not expect to get this much mileage out of the program this of course is episode 250 and uh, i'm just very happy with the work that uh, we've been able to do on the show i i've been able to talk to people that i never imagined that i would be able to, to speak with and just have really interesting and insightful face-to-face conversations and i'm very proud of it really appreciate all of your support here's where i ask you to give us some more support if you like this show there are a couple of ways to support us you've got a couple bucks you can send it our way over on our patreon if you would like us on itunes or wherever you get your podcast that would be very helpful that really helps us when it comes time to uh, book some, uh, some big name guests for the program uh like us on facebook follow us over on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. If you've got any feedback, it's uh, riylcast at gmail.com. I think that's about it for all the uh, the self-plugs. Thanks again to everyone who listened to the show in 2017. It was a... Uh, 
did a pretty good job. Pretty happy with the program. Thanks to everyone for your feedback. And as a bit of a reward, I've got a very exciting guest coming up next week. Um, one of the, uh, the bigger names that we've had on the program in the comics world. So we will be putting that one up just about this time next week for the first RIYL of 2018. Thanks again and stick around because we'll be back then. Happy New Year.